Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what is up, everybody? I've got Jimmy to my right, and on at least our computer screen in front of us, virtually, got two uh, two great gentlemen. We've got uh, Robbie Kroger from Blood Origins, uh, master filmmaker filmmaker does does some super amazing stuff and then we also have Braxton McCoy who has a has a really really amazing story and uh, and really both these guys have have truly interesting uh, stories and uh, fortunate to be sitting virtually next to them right now they are still across the table they are like across the table our guests normally are <laughs> <laughs> really no different for us right now you exactly. guys have a headset on and, and sitting directly across but no I appreciate you guys taking taking the time today to just uh, kind of chat with us and probably the best thing that I think we can do is have you guys introduce yourselves and talk about kind of your origin story uh, individually, and then maybe how you guys came to connect up, and then maybe we can even touch on the film, Robbie, that, that you put, uh, put together that uh, we're going to be featuring on on the Vortex uh, YouTube page, because it's super, super dynamic, just just really impactful film. I got a chance to get, I guess, get a preview today, and uh, man, just like I said, it was just a really, really impactful story, and, and you guys did, did an amazing job, and... and uh, it's really hard to, it's, it's tough to describe, really, but but um, appreciate you guys doing that. So maybe we'll go at least left to right on our end. So that puts you in the hot seat, Robbie. Maybe maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of where you came from and, and how you ended up where you are right now. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Mark and Jimmy. Thank you for allowing Braxton and I to be on this. Um, super grateful, super grateful to be able to tell Braxton's story. This podcast and our project's not about me. This project's Blood Origins is a storytelling documentary platform to showcase the heart of hunters. And Braxton is the epitome of what we try to show in terms of his story. Uh, My Blood Origins is unique to me. My story is unique to me. Um, Born and raised in South Africa to a family steeped in hunting heritage out of Mozambique. My grandfather was raised in the Siberian tiger he lived the uh, two hunting meccas in this world. Actually, the the, the Chinese steppe, the north northern Manchuria, which is northern China. Uh, the guy pheasant hunted in Tibet, red stag hunted in the Siberian forests, and then lived the heyday of Africa in the fifties and sixties. And I got none of it. I didn't get to hunt in South Africa. I lived in a town of eight and a half million people, but uh, all I got was stories and trophies on the wall and. Lo and behold, I landed in Mississippi in 2003 to do a PhD and was introduced to typical whitetail redneck hunting and <laughs> fell in love with it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my evolution to understand uh, who I was as a hunter progressed very rapidly from there. I have two small boys, uh, one named after my grandfather, um, and I really wanted to give them an idea of what it meant, what it means to be a hunter. And so that meant that I needed to figure out in my brain what it meant to be a hunter. And so I started looking around for inspiration to what that was supposed to be. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find a narrative that fit with what I wanted this hunting lifestyle that's essentially in my blood to be projected onto my boys. So I just decided to build it myself. And uh, that's why we built blood origins. And 
It's really simple. Everyone has a, their own story. Mark, you have a story. Jimmy has a story. And Braxton has a story. And we just tell people stories. And I was fortunate enough to send a random email to an outstanding patriot called Braxton McCoy. And he must have detected my South African accent through the email. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I'm in. And the episode that we're going to drop through Vortex, uh, again, super grateful to, for that, is just, a, it's essentially just a scratch, a very light scratch of what Braxton's story is. So I'll stop there. And Braxton, I guess it's your turn. Okay, so first I got to do just a little bit of uh, sort of uh, housekeeping here. Living in small town Idaho, I didn't really think this COVID thing was going to affect me, but we started a remodel, and uh, now we can't go get supplies because everything shut down. So just to and you know help make my wife less embarrassed, there's the reason there's holes all over the ceiling is uh, <laughs> I'm not able to get supplies right now. So we'll totally give uh, you a pass. Yeah, well, I, and yeah, I can tell you this: I I didn't notice the holes in the ceiling, but I did notice the interior decorating because I see a pretty nice white tail buck and and muley in the background there. Oh. So that that's all I saw. You know what? That whitetail is the only whitetail I've ever I've ever uh, killed. I was in northern Idaho. It was pretty pretty fun, but yeah, uh, the mule deer was actually a mistake deer. It's kind of there as a reminder for me. I I was trying to kill this one buck. You know, I glassed them up together, and I'd been watching these bucks for a couple weeks. And there's kind of the the older brother deer, if you will, that's shaped exactly the same, but just a year and a half older. And then this buck, and they were together in some oak brush in Utah. And, uh, after I made it across the canyon and snuck over, I saw this deer and shot it and ended up being the wrong way. I mean, it's not like it's a bad buck, but it was uh, a lot smaller than the, the deer I was supposed to shoot. So classic mix up, um, classic mix up, yeah. classic. But I tell you what, yeah, that's not a, it's still not a bad one to mix up on. That's for sure. So of course they're all, yeah, good. He's, yeah for sure. And it's fun as when you're guiding, you know, you can always tell that story and, and then it, it kind of helps break the ice because everybody's got the same story. <laughs> done it at least once in their life, you know, <laughs> helps you relate. But yeah. So, the, um, like Robbie said, he, he emailed me and told me what they were doing. And, uh, I said, sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to do it. I think he, he may have got my contact from Ryan Mickler. I can't remember. Um, yep. okay. Yeah, it was Ryan. And yeah. And, and they came out and honestly, I'm not, I'm not the, I, you know, I work as a speaker, but I just don't really love being the center of attention. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't all that enthusiastic about it really, but they were doing a cool thing. So I wanted to try to help out. And, um, I was glad I did. They did, they did a really awesome job trying to tell my story. And obviously I care a lot about, uh, hunting and fishing. I grew up, that was all I did. I, I spent most of my childhood formative years with my grandfather on the mountain, on our mountain property, fishing every day and looking at bucks and hunting deer and elk with them every year. And the rest of the time I usually spent doing something with a horse, but as far as recreation went, non-work related, we were always hunting and fishing. So I thought anybody that was going to try to take a, a stab at answering the question that that none of us really, that all of us kind of have a hard time answering, you know, but someone that was going to take an honest stab at it, I thought I, I wanted to try to help uh, participate in that. So that's how I ended up doing Blood Origins. Awesome. So, and then going, you know, looping back into, into your story, I mean, can you give us a little background on that for, for the listeners? or as far as the story sure. that's portrayed in the Blood Origins film? Sure. I grew up on a little horse ranch in southern Utah, and then I joined the military after – I joined the Army after 
and I shipped over to Ramadi, um, Iraq in 2005 and 2006. And I was wounded there on a dismounted security mission. We were working as a security team for a Marine element that was uh, recruiting Iraqis, Sunni Iraqis. Cause it, you have to, I don't, I don't want to get too specific. So they were, they were recruiting Sunnis in the area to become police officers because uh, most of the IPs were Shia and that just think it just doesn't work. So hmm. they were recruiting Sunnis to send them over to uh, another country. I don't, I, you know, it's, it's, it's also a little funky cause I'm not sure exactly what details I can, not that we were anything cool. Just, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but totally they were shipping them to another country to get trained up. And then uh, they would come back and work as police officers in the area. And we were just working as security for the actual recruitment mission. And it was a four day deal. It was three day deal ended up going four days. And on the fourth day, there was a suicide bomber detonated about 15 meters away from me. And I got hit with uh, about 80 different ball bearings and, well, pieces of shrapnel and ball bearings. And it broke uh, both my femurs in multiple places and broke my spine and both of my hips, both arms, uh, broke bones in my back and a bunch of ribs and left brain contusions. I mean, it messed me up pretty good. And I still pack around a bunch of shrapnel. They, they've cut some out, but I think I still have like 12 or so ball bearings in my body, um, which always makes the airport interesting. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> you go through it's it's funny. They want to wand stuff every time because they're like, "Are you sure there's nothing in your pocket?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm positive." <laughs> do you feel like a, do you, do you feel a strange attraction towards magnets too? Or no, no. You know, it's <laughs> funny. They they actually have changed the. Uh, I know for sure that they have changed the sensitivity on the whatever the the metal. I forget what you call those things, but the metal scanners at the airport that you walk through. Not okay, the right. one you stand and do this, but. They've changed the sensitivity because I don't even buzz on those anymore. And I did for like 10 years. So they've lacked security a little bit, which has always kind of surprised me, you know. And it's weird. I, the reason I bring that up is I'm basically like a walking monitor for that kind of stuff. Like they can't lie to me. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, dude, it used to go off. It doesn't now, you know. You could basically yeah, go so, through like, hey, the machine's broke. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the first time it didn't go off, I was surprised and I actually said something to the guy. I said, you know, I got a bunch of shrapnel and these usually go off and he just kind of shrugged his shoulders, didn't have a whole lot to say about it. But Yeah, there's really not a whole lot you can say to that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think the failure rate's a little high, but that's a that's a sidebar but, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I'll, I'll interject here and say that braxton has a number of sidebars and if you decide to dive off on one of the sidebars we could be here for two hours by the way well this could be bad because that that's probably our favorite that's kind of what that's kind of we do a lot of sidebars <laughs> here on the- <laughs> oh, no. well don't oh. talk about buddhism don't talk about artificial intelligence don't talk about <laughs> what other factors have we gone down a rabbit mm, hole on? i think we may have just started developing the braxton podcast series Right, right, right. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. Yeah, if you want to hear an idiot wax about things because he read an article or two, you know, <laughs> it's like ridiculous. Yeah, I'm sorry. Now I can't even remember where we were we were at on that. Oh, I yeah. just chatting through a little bit of the, I guess, you know, the, the days of the incident and then kind of, the, you know, obviously the little bit of the aftermath there. Yeah, so then I was shipped home and I spent a few months in Walter Reed doing inpatient rehabilitation every day and then they sent me home on this new they had a it was new at the time program where 
basically Walter Reed was filling up with soldiers and they needed to kind of free up bed space. So they would try to send guys home to heal at home. And it, it, it worked out good because once you were doing your outpatient care, you could, you know, have family around and, and that kind of stuff. So they put me on that program and shipped me back to Utah. And then I spent two years doing rehab in Utah. And I progressed more with my civilian physical therapists and doctors I mean, it was night and day what I got done in the civilian hospital as opposed to Walter Reed. And that's not to take a shot at Walter Reed. It's just ended up having a great physical therapist. And he used to be the PT guy for the Olympic wrestling team. So he was kind of right up my alley and really neat dude. Nice. So I spent a couple of years doing that and I still was walking on two canes. And I definitely could. One time I climbed up on a horse real broke, like kid's horse basically i mean a horse i used to pack my daughter around on i crawled up on him with using my canes and then we we rode off up a lane out through the hay fields and then he slipped on the ice and we fell down and it popped my hip out of the socket so i had to crawl my butt back on that horse and uh ride back to town and then go to the hospital so the the, the point of that is like horses are all i really cared about and i was busted up and i couldn't do it anymore and even in my, in my like moronic state, you know, where I, I'm almost like uh, convinced I'm indestructible sometimes. Even I couldn't deny that I couldn't get on horses anymore after that. That's why I bring it up. Yeah. So I went to the hospital and uh, got that done. And, and, you know, I spent another six or eight years trying to get better. And I just never got on. I sold all, all my horses and saddles. And obviously my old man still had all his stuff, but I didn't have anything. And pretty depressed. You know, I started drinking a lot and taking pills and just doing all, all number of self-destructive things. And then one day I, I was helping a little kid with baseball practice and he hit a, he hit a ground ball to, to my glove hand side. And it just kind of instinctively took a couple of hard steps and it was like a, a light bulb clicked. I felt like, Holy crap, I can run. So I just started jogging and I text my buddies and called some of my buddies from the military. And one of them was even crying. I'm like, dude, grow up. Like <laughs> we don't need to be crying here, but you know, it was kind of a emotional yeah, idiot. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> what a freaking wuss man. But it was, it was a great moment. And <laughs> Ryan turned the cameras off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we, I started running and then, a couple of weeks later, I, I ran my first mile with an old teammate of mine and it's been downhill from there. And I spent another year rehabbing, trying to get better and better and uh, run as much as I could. And then my old man had a buckskin colt that he wanted help breaking. And I went and got on for him and helped him. And uh, the colt kind of twisted my knee up pretty good. And I went to the hospital for that and they were looking at my spine. I, I have, so when I got injured, it kind of messed up the orientation of uh, the way my skull sits on my spine. So my spinal cord is not necessarily pinched, but it's just kind of got pressure on it from the skull. And so I was talking to the doctor and I said, well, what's, what's the prognosis there? And he said, well, if you, if you got bucked off and landed on your head, you'd probably be paralyzed, you know? And so then I was back to couldn't ride horses. So I spent about a year like that. And finally my wife said, you got to do something. You're, you know, you're horrible. So we went and got some, <laughs> so we went and got some Colts and I just kind of decided, you know, to hell with it. If anybody gets bucked off on the back of their head, they're probably going to be paralyzed. So, you know, what do I care? But 
so anyway, now I'm back to training horses full time and enjoying myself, you know, living, living life as best I can. And it's been a, a weird, you know, I think it not necessarily, it's not necessarily abnormal, but it's been a, just a roller coaster, you know, the recovery, you know, you're up here and then down. And I think it's true for everybody. It just, when you're, you're the person sort of living that movie out, it feels like who knows what's coming next, you know? And so, yeah, now I'm finally to a place where I'm feeling pretty, you know, pretty good about life and doing good and doing things I care about. And, and that's mostly what this blood origins that, that Robbie was shooting is talked about. Let me that's give awesome. you a story, a backstory to, to Braxton is running. And I don't know if he's going to remember this phone call or not. And mm-hmm. I remember it distinctly. I was driving from Jackson to Dallas and Braxton says, Hey, have you got time to talk? I want to, I want to give you an idea. And we were talking about his story and when we we're going to come and get his story and whatnot. So I said, sure, give me a call. He gives me a call and he goes, hey, man, I, I really want you to like, I want you to tell my the story. And I was like, all right, well, what story is that? And he's like, well, I'm going to, I want to do a 50 miler. I want to do an ultra marathon. I'm like, okay, I know this guy's had like multiple surgeries. And he's like, <laughs> you know, I tried to do an, uh, an ultra marathon two years ago. And then my knee, I messed up. I broke like all my ACL, my MCL, whatnot. So I couldn't do it. I'm like, okay. I rehabbed that. And then I was like a month out from the ultra marathon. And then I had a heart attack, the second one. <laughs> and I couldn't do it then. And I'm like, okay, jeez, man, what is this guy's, what is this guy's? And he goes, no, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do another one now. I was like, man, that's awesome. Congratulations. I can't believe like the stamina and the, you know, the, the focus that you have to complete this mission. He's like, no, you don't understand what I'm telling you. I'm going to, I'm going to run this Idaho frozen 50. It's in the snow. It's in the ice. It's like 3000 feet of elevation change over 50 miles. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh. And you want us to film this. And and this is South Africa and I do not do cold at all. And then he says to me, no, 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 you still don't understand. I'm going to win it. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh, my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> this is going to be a crazy, crazy story. Lo and behold, we did not go and film the Idaho Frozen. Did you even run that Frozen 50? They canceled it that year. Uh, good for them because you would have won it. I would. <laughs> Yep, that's true. That's the one I can win. That's why I want to enter that one. I can't, like, the Moab 240, I can't win that, but I can win one in the snow with elevation for sure. Coming out of guide season, I'm good as I can get, so. So you got you guide hunters then as well, huh? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think I'm I'm retired from it, but I did, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to guide this year. I Well, I'm taking Robbie, but otherwise... But I have got it for years, yeah. I like the, yeah. I think I'm retired from it this year. <laughs> <I know. laughs> well, yeah, of, I, I've, I've said it for like three years. So I, okay, uh, all right. But, like the uh, Brett Favre of guides over there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. It's, yeah. it's but, uh, t- you know what, though? I mean, it's tough to, it's tough to speak in certainties. It you is, know? it is. Mark, I think this is. is probably particularly exciting for you hearing that Braxton, you train horses because Mark, you have a low key, under the radar, super desire to tame a wild stallion. Okay, yeah, and <laughs> so this did. This came up. This was a topic of converse 
I brought it up. Like at one point in time, Mark and I were in a car for probably 32 hours total together. A lot of things got brought up. And then LA. A lot of things came up. And one of which was that Mark has always had a John Wayne fantasy of capturing. I I just thought it could be interesting to go through the process to go through the process of essentially I think of I think formally they call and Braxton you might know a heck of a lot more about this than I do um, because I'm not I don't live in the horse world I've gone on one horseback hunt I learned what I learned about horses and this is I'm not anti-horse I love horses I learned I'm not a cowboy and uh I just horses and their personalities and what and how they respond and how they relate to one another is like infinitely fascinating and their relationships with one another. And if horses like yeah. to be by each other, but then get split up, then oh, they don't yeah. like that. Some like, horses it's kind of like, they're totally fine in the line. All of a sudden they get up next to another horse and they're totally not fine. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've had very limited experience horseback running, yeah. but my wife and I did on a recent vacation, and yeah, I about got thrown from one because, like, I don't know, one horse flicked its tail wrong, and then the whole right. thing went to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> I learned if a horse hasn't been around blood or dead animals before, they can, like, freak out a lot and, and not care for that. Really? Uh, well, Braxton's got a recipe for that. I'd love do, that's it, true. It wasn't it wasn't my horse, but I'd, so, I'd be yeah, curious to hear. Explain. Well, here I'll finish. I'll finish. All right. So, so that's right. Mark's got to tell more about his fantasy. Here. We were thinking about and maybe with somebody who obviously knows how to train horses because we are not those people, but uh, <laughs> adopting because I think it's kind of more of a formal adoption adoption process. Adopting a wild mustang and then going through the process of training said mustang and then going on a hunt with it. That was the idea. And even right. even just talking about it, I guarantee we've bit off more than we can chew. But <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what, what goes into what goes into training horses and all this stuff? So no, it's that's definitely not more than you can chew. We can do that for sure. That's not that, that's not See, a Mark, problem. It's gonna um, happen. You're gonna keep it at your house though. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the the BLM has a program called Tip that's for that. It's uh, it's like a I forget if it's trainer initiation program or something. It'd be you adopt the pro, the horse and then it goes to a trainer and then you take it how it works. But okay. Gotcha. But yeah, no, we could do that very easily. So as far as training, it depends on the age of the horse and the experience the horses have had. And then whether it's, you know, if, it, if it's a horse that's been messed with before it's usually worse, worse off, you know, honestly, like a horse that someone's, bought and then not done anything with for a few years and just kind of fed it treats is going to be much harder to deal with than a Mustang off the, you know, off the prairie, so to speak. So really, really, um, yeah, by far. Or they just get, they just get kind of used to that lavish lifestyle and then you just go around trying to make them work and they're like, Hey, screw you. I just want treats, dude. Well, so there, so a horse (laughs) is just a biological machine, right? It's a, it's a primitive brain and it's working off of serotonin and dopamine. It's just like, so the mechanisms that you use to try to get that dopamine release have to change if they've, if they've gotten that through very, like if, if you've just been giving treats to a horse over and over, he's getting that release dopamine. Cowboys call it release, but it's a dopamine release specifically is what it is. Mm-hmm. He's getting that every time you give him a treat. Well, we need that 
neurobiological or physiobiological response in order to train them because that whole that horse's whole life is pressure and release like let's say when you pull the rein to the left and you want him to turn what he's what you're doing is you're applying pressure to his mouth and then when he goes the way you want you release the pressure and then he actually gets a little shot of dopamine well if Hmm. he's just been fed treats forever his dopamine spike is like up here and we need it down here to begin because in order to put enough pressure on to get that release, we have to do more than we want. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Because his body is habituated to the dopamine. So yeah, it's better, it's better that they haven't been messed with at all. And then you can keep everything slow, you know, sort of like we're trying to slow the curve or whatever, this whole COVID thing. It's kind of the same, same deal with, with the horse where you want to keep the training as, as quiet as you possibly can. And if they've habituated, then you have to elevate it to a place that's pretty tough. And the worst horse and the hardest horse by far is a horse that was mistreated by somebody like really, I don't want to use the word abused because I think that's a pretty specific thing, but horse that was handled really roughly and then went to somebody who was too sweet on it and just gave it a bunch of treats and and stuff because then you really, you've really kind of lost they've taken both tools from you, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, that seems pressure. I'll just say that seems like a lot of up, like a lot of up and down there, you know, like almost like the two extremes. Exactly. Yeah. Cause this horse has responded. If he's been handled too roughly, then the, the amount of pressure you have to put on to even get his attention is, is just way more than you would want to, to deal with. So it makes it really tough, but there are ways to try to help him, but it's, it's tough. Mark, when we were with when we were with Braxton, it's amazing. You talk about just trying to handle a horse. Braxton had a three-year-old Braxton, right? A three-year-old colt. Yeah. That hadn't been touched. And he had just gotten her in the trailer uh the day before and took like 45 minutes to get her off the trailer into her pen. True. And he said, We arrived at like noon. He was like, Hey, you want me to break a horse? And I said, yeah, okay, how long is it going to take? And he's like, oh, three hours, four hours. And I was like, no way is that going to take four hours. And what, was, what unfolded in front of our eyes was this horse and its level of trust to Braxton, that whole idea of pressure and release. And just, it wasn't just, and this is where we get a little philosophical, it wasn't just Braxton breaking a horse, but it was Braxton exhibiting almost like this this patience and this calmness and this thing that was almost taken away from him as he was when he was a soldier right and his broken body and this horse that's in front of him that just needs reassurance constantly and and patient talking to and it's just it was this bond that you you couldn't fathom without seeing it firsthand right and we watched it from outside the ring and I'm somebody who just, you know, every time I see a horse, it gives me devil's eyes and it's going to chomp one of my fingers off, whatnot. <laughs> um, but it was the most surreal experience that I have seen. And, and it was just, it was literally three and a half hours from nothing to saddle to Braxton on it. And he just turned her and moved her backwards five paces and was like, all right, we're done for the day. Amazing. Hmm. So, and, and that's kind of the, what goes into like, quote, breaking a horse. It sounds weird to say. It sounds, I mean, t- like <laughs> breaking one. But what, uh, so it's it's that you get them used to having a saddle on them and having somebody sort of ride them and them being 
I guess the this almost extension of you in a way, or what what goes into that? Uh, yeah. So for just getting getting broke enough to get on them, that's pretty. That doesn't take too long. But the, the main idea is that you've got to first. They definitely have to trust you first of all. I mean, you can get on them. Um, I did it plenty as a younger man. You just you can just get on them if you're cowboy enough and sort of force them through it, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they'll buck. And but the problem is when they do that, when their very first experience with a person. So bucking, you have to go back a little bit. Bucking is actually a defense mechanism. You know, you see a deer buck a mountain lion off. It's the exact same principle. Sure. Lions are the main predators for wild horses. So it's, it's exact. So you trying to get on, on that thing is basically like attacking him. You know, he thinks you're, that's how mountain lions kill him. So, you know, your horses don't categorize, they don't know how to categorize either. So he, a horse, and this is, this is coming from the actual research on the horse brain. They can't, they can't distinguish between different animal categories. It's just predator prey. So you are very much a predator. And then everything that's not a predator is pretty much a horse. If it's a animal, as far as they're concerned. Sure. So okay. If you just jump on them without getting them to, to believe that you're not going to kill them, then they literally think you're a mountain lion. I mean, exactly the same processes go off in their mind. So you can do it that way, but it's not effective because if his first experience is like that, then later on down the road, you might force him through it. And I've done this with horses. You force him through it. And then later on down the road, something happens and he gets scared again. He's going to try to buck you off. Guaranteed. In fact, I have, I've had, I could tell you a dozen stories of horses doing that to me um, and bucking me off. But if you do it the right way where you get them to trust you and, and realize that you're, you know, you're there to be their sort of, mentor and kind of leader and they're all they're also very pack oriented animals you know they're social so you want to definitely be the the sort of alpha horse in their brain but you if you can get them to trust you that you're just their leader and you're there to sort of help them and guide them and uh mentor them through the the scary stuff which you know training that pressure is scary to them so you want them to believe that you're helping but if you can do it that way then later on down the road when he gets scared he'll if you did it right, he'll stop and plant all, all four feet and just look for a signal from you, like something, some help, you know? Hmm. So you can, you can train them to stop when they're scared, if you do it the right way. And you, you certainly can't if you do it the wrong way. So, well, yeah, that's gotta be then really important. Like you said, with your condition with the skull and your spine and stuff, I mean, anything you can probably do to keep from getting bucked off is a good thing. Yeah. And just paying bills, you know, <laughs> you get bucked off uh, too many times. It's pretty hard to stay working. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So um, when I was a young kid, it, when I was a younger kid, I wouldn't have minded as much. I mean, I still, every once in a while they'll buck, you know, but it's usually out of throwing a temper tantrum rather than fear, which is, which is different. So, yeah. Yeah. I'd never, uh, you know, I've seen things over time, you know, a little bit, you know, different methods. And I, I never thought of, you know, somebody just jumping on and that horse buck and essentially <laughs> being perceived as like a predator, right? That's like trying to attack and kill him. Like, I think that'd be a little bit jarring for, for, uh, uh, any, any organism, you know, I'd probably freak out too, you know, and you look at, like you said, how a mountain lion jumps on a deer or whatever. I mean, they jump on their back and latch on and, you know, don't let go. And, but then like with your method though, it's almost like you're the uh, the alpha lead horse making all the calls, except they do the walking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got to yeah, admit, that's, like, that's right. when anything jumps on me, I'm usually 
frightened. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was. Uh, so so I'm, I'm like, I'm drawing a parallel, you know, like if you think about it and you put yourself in the horse's shoes, it's just like, whoa, that thing just got on me, you know? <laughs> it's funny. You think of uh, innate responses. I'm going to sidetrack here. I'm going to provide the, uh, this rabbit uh, trail uh, provided by Mark Boardman. I was getting Avery down. My, my youngest daughter's name is Avery, and I was getting her down to bed the other day. I was laying in bed with her. And my older daughter, she's six, snuck in very adeptly, mind you. She's going to be a good hunter. And she snuck in, crawled across the floor, and as I was leaning over to set a, a book down on the nightstand, she jumped up and scared the heck out of me. I screamed. I'll just say it right now. I, I screamed. And I was thinking about that, you know, like, why do we scream when something, like, surprises you. I was like, it's because if we were in a group, like, I just feel like it was like some innate, like, Mm -hmm. not defense mechanism, but like auto response that like, had that been a mountain lion, like my scream would have uh, told, alerted you to that gem if we were together. And And I was like, oh, so that's why I think that's why we automatically scream because I wasn't holding it back. uh, I can tell you that. Now your youngest daughter asked you to check the closet for her older sister in the closet. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's my sidetrack. Yeah, but uh, so talking about the uh, and it was touched on the film the the horse aspect of it and the training horses that you do is definitely I mean it seems to be being something you grew up with and something you're so passionate about it's 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 cool that now you are back doing that again and how does that part tie in then to your hunting and what you've been what you've been accomplishing now as you go out hunting. I mean, obviously even you've, you've done guiding too. So that's, that's a pretty incredible story to have gone from so many broken bones and PT and all that stuff to then also hunting. Where does that play in? As a guide in the, in the Rocky mountain areas, anyway, you, you just have to have horse experience to be useful. I mean, if we hired and we did sometimes hire kids uh, that, well, this one company that I worked for would hire kids uh, out of guide school, but the majority of the guide school was actually just horsemanship. Mm-hmm. Um, we just need them for basically everything. So it was extre- extremely useful there. Very useful. And then e- even just recognizing a horse's attitude changes is more important than I, I think people could realize. Like, like if you're hunting elk and you're on a horse, 100% of the time they will find the deer elk before you do 100% of the time. Really? If you're watching them. Yeah. They will always find them first. Now how, so, what, what things are you looking for? How are they doing that? Where mostly for me, if I'm on their back, mostly I'll be watching which way his ears are turning because okay. they can hear directionally, you know? So if, if he, he can have one ear going this way and he's following what's happening in front of him and then he can turn his other ear over here and be picking up other sounds. So like if he turns his ear this way and then he wants to turn his head like that, I'll just let him stop and figure out what it is. Another thing they do, uh, they'll make a sound that people think is like a snort. I'm sure you've all heard it. It kind of almost sounds like a sneeze yeah. that they do. Oh yeah. What he's doing is clearing the gunk out of his nostrils so he can smell better. That's what that is. So if oh. they're doing that, they're smelling something new and it's usually worth paying attention to. Interesting. So he's literally, or she's literally going like, I need to take a better smell at that. Yep, exactly. And is that, and sometimes it might be your pack and you better figure that out too, because he or she might buck you off if that's what it is. You know, it might be something that you've put on him that he's still trying to figure out because you didn't give him a chance to, you know, sort of uh, acclimate to it before he threw it on him. You know. Oh, okay. Now is that, 
I guess in using that, it's not like, man, I'm going to sound like a complete moron, but I just, I just don't know much about horses. Horses aren't like predators themselves, right? No. So they're not, when they're looking for that stuff or they're sniffing for that stuff or listening for that stuff, they're not looking for something like, oh yeah, we're going to go get that thing. They're more just curious, like what's out there? Is it a mountain lion? Is it a whatever? Right? Yep. Exactly. Okay. okay. Got it. Yep. And you can watch for even small responses, uh, like a sudden lift in not, not their like chin. Cause that just might be them trying to pull reins from you. But if you see a sudden rise in their head like that, um, usually that's cause they just got a shot of like neuroepinephrine. So if you think of horse is most vulnerable when he's eating or drinking, cause his head's down and he needs his pole up to be able to run. So what happens is physiologically, as soon as they get a shot of um, neuroepinephrine, their body automatically jerks that head up so that they can see left to right. Hmm. So, or I mean, it, it, around them. So if you're on a horse and his heads bounce up like that, so he just got hit with a nervousness, his anxiety of some kind. And you have to watch for that stuff training too. Like just, just small changes you want to watch like that. And, and that one's reflexive. They don't have, that I personally, I don't believe they have control over that. Like when guys will in the horse world will say, Oh, he's kind of a high headed horse or whatever. That's, he's not being a jerk. He's being done. He's got anxiety coursing through him right now. You know, he's just full of um, neuroepinephrine is what's happening. And that's why his head's way up here. Cause he's scared to death. You know, like next time you go to a rodeo, you'll see some barrel horses will be antsy and they'll be trying to go left to right like this in the, in the lane before they come out. And then others will be really prancy with their heads way up. Yeah. Well, the, the ones that are really prancy, they're just jacked up because they want to go run. So th- it's just like, they just took a shot of pre-workout hmm. and they're just getting that chemical release. So, yeah. So if you're hunting, that's something to watch, you know, and I don't know much about, you know, mules really. I've messed with them a little bit but they don't seem to react the same way to stuff. There's kind of more level. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, horses, like I said, I've very, very little experience, but you know, and, and, and it's probably due to that inexperience, but they, to me, they seem like super, I don't know if fickle is the right word, but just like there's, there's, or maybe they just have different personalities. And like you said, they respond, they respond. I don't know. Like they're just, they're super, they're really, really interesting animals, and I feel like there's a lot to f- figure out about them that I that I they just, probably they probably think the same thing about us. I mean, humans are be. like humans are like one of the weirdest animals on the planet when you really think mm. about it. Oh. I mean, all the stuff that we do, all the weird ways we have feelings about stuff, or how we like things and don't like things, and change our mind and sort of like put a personality to like plants or you know inanimate objects super strange so really in the horse's mind it's it's not me it's you <laughs> yeah exactly you okay. might as well be an alien jumping on their back but you know <laughs> just even hearing the stuff that you're saying there braxton like it's like it's like oh yeah i have seen the horse do that before like you said you know you see him picking their head up like that and to hear you talk about that is like it's almost like a like an auto response or just like like they don't really have a choice in the matter because they're super anxious that's like i don't know there's a lot to pay attention to with these things. Yeah, and a lot of it translates to deer and elk too. Uh, you know, they're all ungulates have the same sort of behavioral patterns. So, same thing. Um, think of a buck or a, a bull is even better. You know, a bull out in a meadow that you're trying to call in, and he's or not call in, but just sort of set on, and he's grazing, 
and then he hears something, the first thing that happens is his neck yeah. shoots Poof. that pole up. Yep. Yep. Same exact thing. Definitely. And bucks are the same. Except for usually if it's a big buck, his head goes up and then he goes away immediately. (laughs) You see the head and then the tail. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, what, so, I mean, like you kind of have like a, you know, a lifetime of, of experience with horses, you know, and then you talk, talk through, you know, obviously that, that day in Iraq. And then like, you know, you're talking about how your, your wife was like, you need to get back into horses. You're miserable. I guess what, what is it about horses like themselves or intrinsically like that you maybe fell in love with initially, or, I mean, it seems like, you know, they're as much a part of your life as you are a part of their life. Yeah. It's funny because I, my earliest memories of horses are all bad. You know, like my old man put me on a horse. I probably shouldn't have been on getting bucked off or a horse taken off on me. So I think originally as a kid, it was falling in love with just the the cowboy life and and probably largely the idealism of it because everything else sucks. The pay sucks. The work sucks. The temperature sucks. You know, the weather's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so I think you fall in love. It's sort of a romantic thing. And I, I, I think that's how it started. And when I left for Iraq, I still, I definitely still thought of horses as just purely a tool. And now when I, when I got back into training horses, I, I see them more as almost a, like a union mirror because whatever I put into that horse is what I get out. And a lot of it was, it was just learning a lot more about them and just watching made me realize that the things I was seeing in my horses that I didn't like were actually reflections of, of parts of me that I didn't like, you know, a horse that might, take off on you or, or sort of get frustrated with you. And that kind of stuff was probably me. Well, it wasn't probably, it was me getting to getting mad and being up in his mouth too much or jerking on him, you know, or being trying to make the horse go do something rather than um, talking him into doing it together. So it was, it's become a a process of uh, self betterment through animals, I think is what it is. And like, for instance, if I get a, if I get a problem Colton and he's got, you know, a bucking issue as I'm working through him, I watch his behaviors and it's, we, he's got the same, you know, sort of structures in his cerebellum. And then his second brain is structured somewhat the same. So as I work through his problems, I find, Oh, you know, that's probably what that, that portion of my PTSD is causing me to manifest behaviors like that, probably, you know, Okay. So I work through the mm. horse and then it, it really has helped me kind of diagnose myself. I always had a hard time talking to, to shrinks. I just didn't, it's just not my thing. They frustrated me. So working through it myself between books and horses has, has been really helpful in dealing with those emotional scars. And then the physical process helps as well because I stay, I stay fit and I stay moving all the time and I'm happy. Maybe when I get the horse bucks on me, maybe that's not so great for my back or something, but otherwise it's, it's in general, pretty good for me physically and emotionally. And then I think most importantly, it's helped fulfill whatever that spiritual hole was. It's, it's helping to to fill that void too. So it's kind of a uh, sort of multi-layered uh, a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the, 
on the hunt side, you know, I mean, I know a lot of Robbie's films, you know, deal with, uh, you know, topics associated with, with hunting and kind of, uh, you know, the wholeness that that provides, you know, spiritually in a lot of ways. Has hunting in your life, you know, kind of before and after the incident been like, I guess, a, a healing tool, if you will, or, or being outside? Is that something that, you know, has helped you in your life? Yeah, I think it's just as important as the next thing. I, like I said, I grew up hunting and fishing with my grandpa and it wasn't just like all the other kids out in the West. And I'm sure kids in the Midwest and East too, I just don't know. I, I can't quite relate to that, but most of the kids out here in the West, same thing. They, uh, you just sort of grow up outside, you know, as soon as I got my chores done and I was a little old boy at, you know, put, put, take the BB gun and a backpack and an apple and a sandwich and just head off and, you know, look for squirrels and birds and whatever else. So when I got home, and I was going through the the sort of stages of grief, I ended up in a place where for a little while where I, I would just say, oh, I can't stand hunting. I don't care about hunting. And it was because I couldn't, I, I couldn't physically go out and do it. Right. So I would be like telling myself, oh, it doesn't matter anyway. You know, I like fishing better anyway. And, you know, just making all these excuses. And then the moment that I was able to move enough to get out hunting the first thing I did was get my bow and an elk tag you know get out and get back to it and that's helped sort of bring me all the way full circle on on the healing process obviously I'm not perfect you know I have I still have issues and stuff but knowing that you've gotten back to where you begun is sort of healing in and in and of itself because when things change and are disrupted you can't really go forward until you get back to where you're sort of baseline is you know and my baseline has always been out you know a love of the outdoors and and now I can do all that again and another layer of it that I've talked with Robbie about was I was I was working as a speaker for probably 10 years by then and I always had a hard time I don't like doting or bragging like I don't like braggadocious behavior in other people all that much and I really don't like it in myself so I always kind of had a hard time with it and you know, if you're giving a motivational speech, it's basically people are paying you to kind of dote on yourself and your experiences for an hour. And that always kind of frustrated me. And my friends would sort of say nice things and family and all this. And, and that's all good. But I just felt like nothing. I it was having a hard time, you know, because people say good things to you, if, especially if they pay you to go speak somewhere or if they're a family member and you have a hard time finding out what the truth is what the truth of it really is. And I, I care a lot about truth. And so the first elk hunt I was able to get out on, I ended up caught in a windstorm after I got up there and there was just absolutely no way I was going to be able to shoot my bow. There's just no way. I mean, we've all been there and that oddly enough was one of the most cathartic experiences I've had since I've been home because I had worked so hard for 10 years to get out there and then my first attempt gets foiled by, you know, nature. Um, <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, you are just, you know, a speck of dust. I mean, you know, the, the indifference is healing in and of itself, I feel like. You know, the indifference of the outdoors. I, I, I think it's it's useful to be humbled like that every once in a while, you know. Yeah. In the episode itself, you know, Braxton... I know you know it and I should know it since I've listened to you so many times, but I don't have the, the mental acuity to lock in poetry, but 
Do you want to just give us that that poem line of the wind cutting through you that you used in the episode? Yeah, I can't remember exactly the line I did in that, but in that poem, I, I think probably my favorite line is he, he says, Lord, give me a wind in my face, um, a wind that cuts like a knife that's sharp enough to cut through the fog. And I can't remember the exact lines, but he what he's talking about is he's frustrated with, with sort of the world, which is where I was kind of existentially. And he realizes that he's, that his real problem is ingratitude and he wants God to give him sort of a a blistering wind to kind of cut through all of his BS and get back down to the root of things. Mm. And and that's what I felt like that, that did for me. And it, it, you know, sometimes suffering is clarifying. That's what happened to you that day on that mountain is that you, you realized the gratitude that you had for the 10 years that you had built up to that moment. And it wasn't about dropping an elk, even though that would have been the cherry on the top, but rather it was the fact that you were in that moment being able to, you know, be in his creation again and do the things that you love and you were still here, right? You were, you were, you live every day on borrowed time. That's, and that's what the episode is titled borrowed time. And, and Braxton is is that person, and it's not just Braxton's message. It's every single veteran that we've we've interviewed, and this is Braxton is our fourth veteran. That you know, it's easy for the veterans to say we use the outdoors as a healing experience, but it's another way. It's another thing to capture it. And Braxton's story, Jeremy Austin's story, the double-legged amputee, Brian Caperas, Craig Corsi, all of these guys are coming back from war. And the outdoors and the ability to hunt is a healing component to all of that suffering that they've been through on our behalf, essentially. And, you know, I'm an American citizen now, and I'm super grateful for people like Braxton and Jeremy and, and Coop and, and Craig. And, you know, if, if only I was raised an American, I would have hopefully been a veteran, but I wasn't. So the only thing I can do is give thanks to those that did. And so, it's just a message of that a lot of veterans have and it's the ability to tell that story through and we're just using blood origins but through your guys like you know the military appreciation month that you're going to do in may and showcasing these stories and showcasing braxton's story is incredible so mm-hmm. i was just blessed to be as it says behind braxton blessed to know braxton and develop a, a keen relationship even though i can't grow a mustache like he can oh god um, <laughs> i'm in the same boat brother <laughs> that thing is glorious mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh my goodness it is uh <laughs> it is pretty cool though to hear you explain the um nature aspect of him being out in the wild hunting because it's so similar to what you're also describing about the horses and I think one of the things that I've enjoyed and that I know I've I've heard and it always manifests itself in different ways and different explanations or different specific things. But when you interact with something that is nature or, you know, beast, if you will, there's the fact that like like we were talking about earlier, those things are so much different than humans and humans complicate things so much oftentimes with the emotional aspect of it. They complicate things with just whatever. We, we love to overcomplicate everything. I know I do too. But like, you know, when I look at my dog, for example, my dog is totally not like a cool, 
working dog. She's a cool dog. I like her, but I mean, she's like cuddle mania all the time on the couch and is afraid of things that I wish she wasn't afraid of. But it's also uh, neat when she is in her element to see, like you're talking about, a horse doesn't see, oh, that's a that's a guy human being with brown hair and whatever. It's just like, nope, that is a living thing. Is it a prey? Is it a predator or is it a friend? You know, and nature doesn't see like in, in your case. And I know you said this in the film, it doesn't see like, you know, Oh, this guy could really use a good day. Like I'm going to give this guy the best day in the world because he seems like he's had a tough time or this guy's, some pompous a-hole, so I'm going to really ruin his day. It doesn't care. It just does what it does whenever it wants. And so that is, in a weird way, therapeutic, even though you'd think the therapeutic thing would be to get coddled by it, and nature is always nice and sunny and bluebird days and stuff. Sometimes getting your butt kicked by it or, you know, removing the complex stuff out of it is actually, it's pretty therapeutic. No, that was... That was definitely one of my one of my favorite moments of the. I was going to say lines of the film, but it's more of a moment when you said that the mountain is just because of its indifference, you know. And I was like, yeah, it is indifferent. Like the mountains don't care, you know. But there's definitely, you know, they they, they don't. They don't care if you're. They don't care if you're cold. They don't care if you're tired. They don't care if you got the buck or the bull or not. You could be there or you could not be there. Like they don't care, you know. But then there's. You know, there's a level of honesty in that too, though, and that's um, yeah. Don't they don't discriminate. They don't. They're not trying to like undercut you, sneak anything. You know, whatever. They just you get what you get. Yep, you get what you get. You don't throw. <laughs> but yeah, no. what I loved about that that piece in the middle there, when what you're referring to, you know, the mountain doesn't care. It's, it's indifferent to who you are. The number of one-liners. If you listen to his episode, the number of one-liners that come out of Braxton is just like, phew. Oh, oh, I've got, I've got, yeah, a, a number of of takeaways <laughs> that are just like, yep, yep, yep. You know, and it comes, I think it, it comes down to just gaining that perspective of what really, what really is important in life when you start boiling it down and you start removing, you know, kind of, uh, which is difficult to do, right? Because I feel like we live in like a in, in a lot of ways, a, a super cluttered life, you know, but, you know, almost like that, that wind that you talk about, you know, as part of that poem, kind of cutting through all those things. And, you know, you can have a lot of things going on, but if you're super cold and you need to get warm, like that's pretty much what matters at that point in time, you know, and mm-hmm. it kind of removes like some of the, uh, mm-hmm. just the ancillary things that really don't have a lot of meaning, even though at times seems like they do. I don't know if I'm interpreting that correctly, but that's how I'm interpreting it. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nature yeah. doesn't have an Instagram page. Exactly. That, that's there you wants, go. That wants you to like it. That's how I get my dopamine, Jim. I know. It's the likes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to remember that in some sense, life is suffering. It's not... I've, I've put it like this before. If you If you just think of just think of the thing that means the most to you in the world, whatever, whatever it is, you know, for me, you know, it's different for everybody and it doesn't really matter. Think of whatever that thing is. And then think of the very worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. You know, write that down. It's even useful as an exercise, write those two things down and then say to yourself, 
if I had to go through that very worst thing in order to get that thing that means most to me, would it be worth it? And the answer is always yes. So then suffering is not something that's meant to be avoided. It just, it is, it's a thing that's meant to be accepted. I think if you look at it in that way Hmm. and that's what, I think if you can learn one thing uh, coming through combat, I think that's what it, what it should be really that we we're all in various stages of those two, those two things, those, there's, there's two, those two poles, I guess, or whatever, you know, we're, we're always somewhere in between those two things. We're either suffering more or we're enjoying the thing that means most to us, you know, and in some sense they're highly correlated. And I think that we forget that it's easy to forget that. For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Agreed. Robbie, with, you know, talking about perspective, you know, it's like being from South Africa and then uh, moving to the States. Did you, when you were, you know, going to school and finished up school, did you have original intentions of going back to South Africa or not? Oh, yeah. I had a girlfriend. I had the, the girl was going to wait for me, you know. I was promised it took me three years. I'll be done. I'll come back and we'll live a life ever after. And then I met my real wife here in the States. But no, I you know, really wanted to go back to South Africa. Obviously, you know, the wildlife and the conservation aspect of what Africa is, is different. Right. But as I explained to my friends there, I found a, a different part of Africa outside of Africa. You know, the wildlife and the abundance of wildlife and the, the conservation aspect of those, of the wildlife, North American wildlife management model was something that was completely unique to me. It was almost like an American going to Africa, but it was me coming to America and understanding it all. And for an outdoorsman that was denied everything that you could possibly do in South Africa, I didn't hunt. Fishing was non-existent. You had to go three hours away to do any of it. It was just like a a smorgasbord, Mm -hmm. especially here in Mississippi. And then you go a little bit west, a little bit east, you get all, all sorts of things. So, you know, there's... I obviously have good mates still in South Africa, but America's home. I'm a citizen now and uh, trying to do everything I possibly can in the realm of the, the possible. Let's just say that. And one of those being going to hunt side by side with my mate Braxton for elk in September. Heck yeah. Well, and then maybe real quick, if you can, like, touch on like maybe the differences between like the, the game management models in South Africa, like sure. were there, were there things because of that model that like prohibited you from engaging in those activities or was it sheerly just the, you know, the distance or where you were, you know, I guess proximity wise to be able to do outdoor activities like that? Or what were the barriers there where you find maybe potentially some more freedom where you're at now? Well, one, it was an awareness barrier. I didn't, if you had asked me, if we had this exact conversation when I was in Johannesburg in 2002, I wouldn't have said hunting was even close to my forefront of my brain. There was no realm of hunting because mm-hmm. I lived in a town of eight and a half million people. I had geographically impossible girlfriends that were 58 miles <laughs> in one direction to go pick them up. You know, that's what you were focused on. But there was no, if, if the, the hunting model in South Africa is, is a private land model, essentially. And so... It's a market geared for American tourists. And so the blue-collared South African isn't able to hunt unless Mm. you had a friend who owned a very large farm and then you would go hunt on that farm. But again, I just it wasn't on it wasn't on my brain. 
It wasn't something I was uh, interested in at the time. Otherwise, I would have done it, uh, probably. It wasn't something accessible to me. So if you think about those three things, it's almost the same arguments that are being used here in America for the tenants of why we're losing hunters. For sure. And so the models are obviously unique, are different. You have the North American wildlife model of sustainable use, uh, consumptive use model. And then South Africa is still, they're both very, if you look across the world, there's only two places where wildlife populations have grown. One is North America and one is South Africa. Two very different wildlife management models, two very different wildlife management systems. Uh, the South African model is very much a replacement of the agriculture that was there with something that is more sustainable over a long term, can deal with climate variability, and has the potential to bring in tourists and tourism into South Africa. And so the wildlife population there from in the early 70s of 500,000 head of wildlife is now estimated between 22 and 26 million today. Mm. So I know you talk about a little bit, you know, at least I saw like kind of like in your almost like autobiographical story of uh, like just like a level of, I guess, appreciation for, you know, like maybe something that you didn't have before. Like you, you came from maybe a position of like, not having some of these things at, at your fingertips and being amazingly appreciative of those things. And at times, and I'm, I throw myself in that bucket, like just because our reality, like as a U.S. citizen born and raised here, like you grow up with these things, these liberties, these freedoms, you know, these public lands that you have access to, uh, the freedom to hunt, access to firearms, you know, with the Second Amendment, you know, stuff we take for granted. And, and that's one thing when I was reading on your website and just listening to that video and you talk, I mean, it sounded like you definitely have, you know, a little bit of a different perspective of, of coming from a place where maybe those things weren't as, you know, you didn't have as much of that and just like a high level of appreciation for it. Well, people can talk about liberties, but once you live in a place that has none, then you truly have a perspective on what those liberties are. You know, the fact that you can walk down a forested road 20 minutes from your house with a loaded rifle or a loaded shotgun and nobody's going to do anything and that's your right, that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Like just that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. The fact that you can go and get a gun, that you can buy ammunition. You know, South Africa at the time when I left, I had a card for my license and I was only allowed to buy ammunition for that caliber gun. And, you know, now it's even worse to go through all the steps of being a legal gun owner in South Africa. But it's just what I have here and what I get to experience and what my boys get to experience and how they are getting raised is not lost on me. And so a lot of people, <laughs> I, I, I laugh, but a lot of people say to me, Robbie, you're such a serious individual when it comes to blood origins. And I said, there's a, there's a single reason why I'm so serious is because I know what it means. And so when somebody, like there's a bunch of meme accounts out there right now that, and we all know who I'm talking about when it comes to poking at other hunters and whatnot, you know, and they start calling me out left, right and center. You know, I'm like, call me out as much as you want, but I know what this means. And I've been in a place where it, it, it's not there anymore. So you want to go there? You want to go to that place where it doesn't 
it doesn't exist for your kids and your grandkids, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. I'll do my thing. Yeah. So that's why I take it so seriously. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty laughy, halfy guy as you've experienced already through this, this podcast. But when, when push comes to shove and it starts talking about liberties and freedoms that, that Americans have that they don't, they, they talk a lot about, but if you don't truly have a perspective on, on what you have until you lose it, then the rubbers met the road. Yep. I think, I mean, you know, that was I mean, a good reminder. It is, uh, it is a good reminder, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, as far as appreciating things, I mean, it's like an old cliche saying, but you know, you know, you don't know what you had until it's gone, you know, but I think there's definitely a lot of, a lot of truth in that. And, you know, I mean, and I think, uh, you know, suffering and, and those sorts of scenarios definitely kind of create, create that perspective. And, and it's almost like a, a yin and yang. You can't have one, one without the other. Well, go. that's why a person like Braxton is so important to me. Mm-hmm. Now you know. I'm going to go home and give my loaded shotgun at my house just a good, a good appreciative look <laughs> when I get home now. Just a little tip of the just hat. A, yeah, just a little hat tip. Just, it's good to have you here, buddy. <laughs> I think if we can all take something away from this, it's that, Jim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I will say this. We need to take one more thing away from this. And this is a plug for Braxton because I know that he wouldn't do it himself. So I get the liberty to do it. So Braxton has a book. I don't know if you know about it or not. Oh, yeah. It's called The Glass Factory. And uh, everyone that listens to this podcast needs to go buy a copy. And if it's out of stock, we'll get some in stock. But it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic testimony to what went on on that day and uh, what happened afterwards. Well, judging from the 17 nuggets that I got from Braxton in a 10-minute video, I'll probably be uh, picking up that book and uh, you know shaping, uh, shaping the rest of my life around, around that because it's definitely some good stuff in there. Yeah. Well, go out and capture that stallion too. <laughs> We're not. You've got an open invitation. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you keep it at your house, I'll come I over. I can't. And... I don't have room for a horse, Jim. I we'll think. keep the con. Let's keep the conversation going. You got room for an F-150 that lights come on randomly when it's in the parking lot. You it, got room for a horse. It doesn't eat hay, Jim. It's <laughs> gas. But let me. Oh God, now I'm I'm getting ready to sidetrack down a whole other rabbit trail. This is a different <laughs> conversation. We're gonna talk horses again. Sounds good. Sweet. Well, uh, yeah, it was awesome having you guys on. Definitely appreciate it. And uh, as obviously we've mentioned a couple times now, but for those listening, check it out. It's going to be up on the Vortex Optics YouTube channel, uh, either at the time of this recording when it comes out or at the time when this recording comes out or or very shortly after at some point. Uh, So keep an eye peeled for that. Let us know your thoughts on it. And uh, yeah. Yeah, excellent stuff, guys. Appreciate it. No, appreciate it. And also, uh, you know, more great stories told very eloquently. Check out Blood Origins. There's lots of great content there. Super, super great stuff. And Braxton, can't thank you enough for everything that you've done and and the sacrifices you've made and and how you've been able to, you know, overcome uh, a lot of that stuff and and inspire others. So it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Well, sweet. It's good to have you guys on. Everybody who's listening, stay uh, healthy and stay safe out there. And we'll see you all next time. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. 
hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.